0: Hello and welcome to Macro Matters, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen Standard Investments. My name is Paul Diggle and along with my co-host Stephanie Kelly, we're guiding you through the macroeconomic and political themes which are driving global markets. And today we're talking about the US labor market and the Federal Reserve recent u.s jobs data have been on the disappointing side at least relative to the size of the shortfall with pre-pandemic labor market in particular worker shortages are evident in a number of sectors so we're going to talk today about how worrying or not these shortages are how permanent or temporary they are and what they mean for wages and inflation and then we're going to discuss what all that means for monetary policy and the federal reserve They've sounded a bit more hawkish recently. Should markets worry about the prospects of Fed QE tapering and eventual rate rises? So joining me in this discussion are Kathy Bostjancic, Chief US Financial Economist at Oxford Economics, the global macroeconomic research firm. And I've always found Kathy a very insightful observer of the US economy and the central bank. So I'm very happy to be joined by her today we also have James McCann, Deputy Chief Economist here at Aberdeen Standard Investments and our in-house US economics expert and Fed watcher. James and Kathy, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Paul. Happy to be here. Thanks,
0: Paul. So Kathy, you're based in New York. James, you're in Boston in Massachusetts. For our listeners especially outside the US, tell us Kathy, what is like life like? in New York at the moment? What is the state of lockdown or easing?
1: Yeah, so things are starting to get back to, to more of a normal state and actually uh, effective on Friday, the state of emergency ended here in New York. So that that's quite a big deal. Um, you still, if you're unvaccinated, have to wear a mask. And if we're traveling on public transportation, even if you're vaccinated, um, you're, you're required to wear a, a mask. But otherwise people are populating the restaurants and, and shopping and and things are getting back to to normal.
0: Great, and James. Are you getting out in the shops, in the restaurants yourself?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's strange to go back. Um, we've obviously got the European Championships being shown over here, and got out to a, a couple of games and being in busy sports bars with lots of people without masks, sort of chanting and cheering. It feels it feels really odd. I take some comfort that Massachusetts has one of the highest vaccination rates, so it does give that sense of security. But it's it's definitely a an adjustment going back to
0: those sorts of those sorts of
2: interactions.
0: It's a big change, isn't it? But a change for the better, I think. So let's get into our main topic then, our first topic, which is the US labor market. Kathy, some of the recent labor market prints, the non-farm payrolls prints, as we've said, have been disappointing, still huge in historical terms, but not as big as we might've expected given the damage that the pandemic did to unemployment. Why are those prints actually somewhat disappointing economists' expectations?
1: Well, I, I think you, you do have a number of people who are taking early retirement. Um, you know, 401ks have uh, benefited. That's our retirement plans from higher stock prices, seeing some of that. Some people rethinking, you know, what type of jobs they actually want to work. Um, but I think also, you know, the, it was easier. There was kind of um, the return of workers to their their previous jobs. That was the easy part. Now what we're seeing is a process of workers finding new jobs, and that's just takes longer uh, it's, it, it, it's 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 and it's also matching the supply and demand together um, also we have ongoing pandemic fears even though I mentioned things are getting back to normal uh, you know New York does stand out I think in, in Compared to other parts of the country, where about seventy percent of the population has had at least one vaccination, um, we have ongoing childcare issues in the U.S. Um, some of the childcare centers haven't been reopened. Of course, now it's summer, so children are, or if they were in school, are now um, you know not you know able to go to school. And there's issues even with the summer camps. There's not enough counselors to to, to be found. Um, and we also relied on. Young foreigners, right? Uh, people from abroad from Europe coming over to help with the counseling, and um, they're just not able to because of COVID. And then I think the other thing, which is very political in nature and is being debated quite um, vigorously, is this extended unemployment benefits. You know, were they too generous? What we have seen is um, about 26 states have decided to repe- uh, peel back the extended uh, unemployment benefits, and that should happen by the end of July. Um, and all the states by September uh, will have stopped with the, the extended benefits uh, for unemployment insurance. So we think that also will start to free up the supply of labor um, to help meet the, the demand.
0: Great. And James, are there good reasons to think then that those factors are all temporary in nature? How temporary are they? And when do these shortages start to, to ease?
2: I think there's good reasons to think a number of them should should moderate as we go through through the summer. Um, you know, we've been speaking about how public health responses to the pandemic have started to ease. We know that in aggregate caseloads have fallen a lot, vaccination rates are rising. So some of those concerns while going back to work because of the pandemic and those restrictions do seem to be do seem to be as we speak moderating so we'd hope to see some signs of a boost from that as kathy mentioned we've got this really interesting national uh, sorry a uh, natural experiment with a whole bunch of states removing this supplement supplemental unemployment insurance top-up so we'll get an early sense in those states as to the extent to which that was discouraging labor supply or not so that'll be interesting but even Regardless, we know that that factor, which has been pointed in research as a contributor, but perhaps not as as large a contributor to the to the decline in, in willingness to work. Um, so we know that that's that's moderating as as well. So I think there should be a uh, a boost, I suppose, to labour supply. Or at least some of those factors that we think might be holding back labour supply it should be easing over coming months and given that we know from the the job openings data there's a huge amount of labour demand over there. We're really hopeful and optimistic that we'll get really strong job growth over the summer. And, you know, again, as Cathy said, part of that will be, just figuring out some of those labor market matches. There probably should be some natural lag as well. So I think we're quite optimistic on the ability of some of those drags to to ease as we look forward.
0: So a lot of these issues, then, as you've both been saying, are on the supply side. It's not that the economic rebound itself is suffering or that demand is weak. Demand is incredibly strong. It's really supply bottlenecks in the labor market that have been problematic and indeed we've talked on a number of previous podcasts about supply bottlenecks in all sorts of sectors but of course labor is one of those. Kathy I've seen some really interesting work from Oxford Economics about the sectoral mismatch between where the supply of labor is and where the demand for jobs is coming from. Could you talk about why that sectoral mismatch has has opened up in the U.S.?
1: Yeah, no, it's um, it's quite striking and and you see it in the sectors that were hardest hit by the pandemic. So leisure and hospitality um, and even manufacturing are seeing the most severe imbalances between supply and demand. Where mining, lodging, uh, logging information and construction sector seeing less of that. Uh, I think in the the leisure and hospitality, uh, some of those workers is what, you know, James and I were mentioning are Concerns still about the ongoing pandemic fears. Those people are, have to relate uh, more directly with the public uh, and can't be socially distanced as much. Um, and also they're rethinking their career and, or, or job opportunities and um, also looking to see, um, you know, the work is hard, uh, but also see if they can gain, garner higher wages. So we're seeing some of that going on as well. And maybe they want to go back Uh, to leisure and hospitality, but looking even for higher wages if it was the prior job. So a lot of that uh, friction going on in that sector. And I could tell you just anecdotally, um, we did take a a, a week off to go to a vacation out in Long Island and um, in the Hamptons, and there was job postings everywhere. Um, so my two young boys were saying, "Look at this job, job one, job one." Of mm-hmm. course, I asked if they were interested. They backed off very quickly. But <laughs> um, but it, you see that even in, in, you know everywhere really, it's throughout the city and 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 uh, this area. So that's I think it's going to be with us a bit. But I agree with James that over time you're going to see that rebalancing and um, the demand is so strong and businesses want to reopen. Um, we think it's just a matter of time and. You know, we think that eventually we recoup the whole eight million that is still lost in terms of jobs. Uh, we we recoup that throughout the year.
0: And Cathy, you're talking there about people taking the time to rethink the job that they that they want. We talk about labour shortages from the perspective of markets as being problematic. The fact that reservation wages are going up, that enhanced unemployment insurance is discouraging workers, all as threatening inflation and being a, a problem for the recovery, but I wonder if from a slightly broader perspective, there's some silver linings to be taken here if people are taking the time to rethink the type of job they, they want, if the bargaining power of, of workers is improving. Are these actually positive trends under the surface once we step back from sort of narrow inflation concerns?
1: I, I think that there is that silver lining and I think it can be positive. Uh, what we had seen you know from a macro perspective is the national income share was going more to employers than employees and that was a trend that was going on you know pre-pandemic. So maybe having that pendulum swing back uh, for the employees is a positive thing. And it, as you said it, especially the lower income uh, rung workers, if they could start to garner higher wages without being mandated, um, that could be a positive thing uh, for sure and help to, to narrow maybe some of the, the income inequality, although we have a long ways to go. Um, of course, on the flip side, that does mean that maybe unit labor costs start to rise, right? And I know we'll talk about this a bit more, but then the question is, how does that get handled? Does that you know crimp profit margins or get passed on to the consumer?
0: Great. Well, let's move on then to our second topic clearly very closely related, which is monetary policy, the Federal Reserve's recent change in its dot plot and the outlook for for uh, QE and, and interest rates. James, at the Fed's recent meeting, I think there were two big pieces of news. The tapering discussion has been moved forward and then the median dot plot for 2023 was put up to incorporate two hikes. Can you tell us what was behind those decisions?
2: Absolutely. Um, well, starting with that that view among FOMC members that the, the start to interest rate tightening should happen a little earlier and be a little more, more vigorous. I think there are a couple of forces driving that. I think the first is that the, the FOMC as a whole is starting to see some of the risks from the pandemic ease uh, on the macro side. It's seen the progress on vaccinations. It's seen the decline in cases, a fuller reopening, and is feeling... More confident, maybe, around its its economic outlook, and at the same time, it's seen inflation rise quite significantly. And while you know it's a few that we agree with, it thinks that that's largely transitory. It's very, very clear at the last meeting that it does see the risk that inflation outlook is being tilted to the upside. So, in some ways, I think it just reflects a sense that some of the downside risks to the macro outlook have have moderated, and they're, while not having it as their base case, that there are major inflation risks. Certainly they're they're, they're a little concerned about that. And then the second is probably related to this concept of their average inflation target and the sense to which yeah, how much of an inflation overshoot are they willing to, to tolerate? Uh, what is the look-back period over that average inflation target? Should they look back over the past decade and think we've been consistently falling short of inflation? Or should they look back just over this recent crisis and think we had weak inflation for around 12 months or maybe a, a little more? And I think what maybe this has shown is that for a few of the FOMC members, certainly those who are factoring in the more hawkish dots, the more hawkish um uh, projections for interest rate tightening, they're really looking back over a relatively short horizon and feeling that actually we've made up a lot of that inflation shortfall. So we shouldn't be looking to to overshoot for much longer still. So I think a combination, a change in how they view the macro outlook and the risks around that but also maybe some new information on the fed's reaction function certainly part of the fed's reaction function about how it it deals with its new average inflation target
0: great and kathy did you see a change in the reaction function as part of that hawkish shift at the fed then did you see that as consistent or slightly going against the dovish bias that we thought average inflation targeting was going to uh, give to to much policy
1: you know, it definitely raises some uh, question about the, the credibility of, of the new framework. Um, and and as James said, it, it does give you some insight as to how different officials are looking at um, the average inflation target. Is it and how far back is the look back period? So, you know, is it you, you find out from some of the regional Fed presidents that it seems to be quite short in nature, the um, you know, Atlanta Fed President Bostic um, and, and St. Louis Fed President Bullard, you know, suggesting that they could actually start to raise rates in 2022, even raising the idea maybe they raise rates before they even fully do the QE taper is quite striking because the playbook all along was what they would taper fully then think about raising interest rates. But we got a lot of pushback, I think, from Chairman Powell um, and also New York Fed President Williams. And I even think Clarita, we haven't heard from Vice Chair Clarita uh, since the meeting. But prior to that, uh, he said that he still sounded dovish, but he was on alert for inflation. And I think that is a healthy um, way to look at things because we really do not know how long the supply demand imbalance is going to last. And we all have been really rather surprised by how, how high inflation has gone more most recently. So I think it's prudent. We weren't surprised that some of the dot plot estimates were moved forward to 2023, but in our view, 2022 seems a bit premature. And we think in the end, you, know, you follow the leaders, you follow Powell, you follow Williams and Clarida, Um, And even if there's some dissension on the board, um, that's not surprising, given this is such a unique period of time.
0: So I'm interested then in that question of how much solace um, we take from the fact that the core members of the FOMC probably are lower dots than the median. And as is a common pattern, the regional Fed presidents are on the more hawkish side. I mean, is that really... A good reason to think that the eventual realized rate path will be below the median dot? How much outsize say do does the chair and, and the core of the committee actually have?
1: It's a great question. Um and it, it raises a couple of questions on top of that um, so I think one uh, I do think the core matter quite a bit and we saw some regional fed presidents get in line with them uh, San Francisco um, president Daly and also Cleveland fed president master also lined up more in the Dovish camp um, but I think the data will really call the tune I you know I think the leaders muster a lot of questions um, um, control and leadership of the, the committee. Um, but if employment, you know, infant inflation surprises to the upside, um, I think they will react accordingly. They're not going to be blind or, or passive. It's just that their view is this is largely transitory. And that they're willing to tolerate, you know, they have a longer look back period. They're willing to tolerate a little higher inflation for longer. Um, but I think it also raises this question. Uh, we've been asked by a few clients um, do you think there's a risk that Powell would lose control of the FMC? And I don't see that, you know, we're not near that state right now, but uh, it is something, you know, marginally is a risk. My, my sense is you can certainly easily have two dissents and that's not an issue. Um, and then maybe it raises a question of how easy is it for him to be reappointed? Um, you know, he's done a, I think, a terrific job navigating through all of this very difficult period um, and crisis. Uh, but you maybe President Biden gets um, some pressure from the more. Liberal Democrats to consider someone else um, and and it, it certainly if he sounds a little bit more hawkish or joins the more hawkish camp, that could be an issue if he stays more dovish. Uh, I'm not saying he would take that view to get reappointed, but then it may help his chances.
0: Yeah, the question of um, Powell's reappointment chances is an interesting one because, of course, there's this historical norm, which is that presidents reappoint Fed chairs even if they were appointed by the opposite party previously. And I think there was a lot of fretting when Trump broke that norm, and it would be interesting to see whether, in fact, he established a new norm, which Biden will then also uh, stick to in, re- in in changing the the chair. But James, so let's talk a bit more about to what extent um, a more hawkish at the margin Fed has market implications. And in particular, are we moving from Um, A sort of market regime that we might call reflationary, which was sort of pushed up break-evens, lowered real yields, weakened the dollar, was very, very good for equities to a more challenging macro environment now that peak policy stimulus is sort of behind us and we're getting into the conversation about tapering and tightening. is How how problematic is that for financial markets?
2: I certainly think of just observing financial markets since the, the meeting there's been a pushback against maybe a bit of the creeping narrative that was starting to come in around the Fed allowing inflation to just roll. In this sense that the Fed had structurally changed and the average inflation targeting would not just allow the the moderate overshoot in inflation that was embedded within within the guidance, but would allow a larger and more persistent overshoot in inflation. I think the way that the Fed is positioned, partly through some of the more hawkish dots, but I think also around around Powell and the cause messaging around around inflation. Power was very, very clear that inflation is not transitory Then the Fed has the tools and the willingness to to take a stance against this. So I think some of the more outlandish expectations there have maybe been reined in to some extent. I'm still not completely convinced that this is sort of a setup for a very aggressively hawkish Fed in which they're very willing to radically bring the tapering um, timeline forward, shorten that timeline absent some... You know, big surprises from their perspective on what inflation and, and growth is is doing. Similarly, with regards to to interest rate hikes, and I think I, I totally agree with Cathy that the data is going to de- determine this. And if we're right that a lot of these inflation pressures are are transitory, then I think that it sets up the Fed to to absolutely be looking to tighten in twenty twenty three, but not to sort of bring that further forward to twenty twenty two or do do anything too aggressive on on that twenty twenty three timeline. So. You know, perhaps some of that open door to markets has been has been narrowed a, a little bit to some extent. Maybe there's some, you know, more active debate around degree of policy normalization. And that puts up a bit of a barrier to some of, you know, maybe maybe, maybe the characteristics around some of those asset market discussions are different and puts a little bit in the way of the, the discount rate for equities or the ability of the, the dollar to continue to weaken. That then can have its own knock-on effects it through international financial markets on other currencies too but i and i guess i'm not saying that this will be something that sort of puts in a policy mistake style or a taper tantrum style that really shifts that quite aggressively i still you know hope that the Fed can tread this line which is still relatively goldilocks between removing policy support
0: yeah one way that i like to come at that question is um is the rise in rates happening for the right or the wrong reasons? The wrong reasons would be some kind of stagflationary shock or a negative supply-side shock. And perhaps you can make arguments that shortages in the labour market, problems we've talked about before in the podcast with the semiconductor market or the autos market in terms of supply, are those kind of wrong reasons, but it strikes me that the overriding reason, at least for a slightly more hawkish Fed is the right reason, which is simply a very, very strong recovery, which justifies a higher rates complex. And uh, 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 my first take is, well, that's probably not a big headwind um, for for financial markets. But Cathy, then maybe a final question. Can you lay out your expectations for the path of inflation and the Fed then? What are you actually forecasting at the moment? What do you think is going to happen?
1: Yeah, so so I guess on the inflation uh, front, we, we do think that uh, we've probably peaked in terms of the year-on-year rate. So uh, headline CPI is around 5%. The, the PCE, the price um, personal consumption expenditure price index, running a bit lower, around 4%. Uh, but we think as the base effects wane, um, that you're just naturally going to see a lower year-on-year rate. Um, the key question, though, really will be those you know, monthly changes and quarterly changes. Um, and if we get some easing uh, and resolving of the supply-demand imbalances, whether it's on the labor front or, or the product front, uh, we do think that happens, but it, it's going to take some time to play out. Um, and and probably is not to 2022 until we get some really good rebalancing there. So in the meantime, prints are probably going to be a little bit on the high side, but we don't think anything uh, near, you know, the, the nine-tenths, eight-tenths increases we've just recently seen. In fact, used car prices, which have accounted for um, disproportionate increase in both the headline and core. Core was about 40% of the increase in core CPI. Um, used car prices have started to ease, um, and that is related to the, the global chip um, uh shortage that that we're experiencing. So it will remain sticky though. And I think that's going to be uh, maybe a bit uncomfortable in the summer um, for investors and for the Fed Reserve, um, because it's going to make it a little difficult for them to, to really um, try to st- distill or assess whether inflation is really starting to ease back towards their two percent target. So a bit of stickiness, um, you know, make things a little bit uncomfortable, I think, for everybody. In in terms of the Fed, Paul, you you asked me about that. Sorry. Um, So we do think that um, they will start to do the QE taper. Uh, They'll announce that, we believe, in August at the Jackson Hole Symposium. And um, we think that they'll start to do the tapering early next year. And then by 2023, um, they tighten twice. Uh, and then thereafter, so it's just very gradual. Now, our endpoint for the Fed fund rate is uh, is 1.8%. So that's lower than the 25 that the Fed has.
0: Brilliant. Kathy, James, thank you both very much. Well, that's about all we have time for this week. Thank you for listening to Macro Matters. Uh, remember that we have a mailbox, macromatters at abeninstandard.com, and we'd love to hear from you if you have questions or topics or suggestions for the podcast. Don't forget to like or subscribe on your podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. But until next time, goodbye and good luck out there. Please note that email is not a secure form of communication, so don't send any personal or sensitive information. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns. Return projections are estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.